It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Greetings again, everyone, and glad you've joined us for another episode. On the program this week, Chuck Sherman. Chuck is an engineer by trade and falls into what I call the professional hobbyist category when it comes to airheads. I think you'll discover that more as we go on here today. Came across Chuck on Adventure Rider, where he posts as Wallaman, W-A-L-L-A-M-A-N. And I was really intrigued by his posts on both the Krauser four-valve heads and the Krauser MKM 1000 motorcycle. And while Chuck will shy away from being called an expert on Krauser history or products, I think you'll find we're in for a very informative episode on all things Krauser performance. William Plam from Boxer 2 Valve is back for another Tech Talk. Our topic this week, the importance of regular maintenance on your motorcycle. Want to follow up on a topic that came up in our last chat with Marcus Best. Uh, you'll recall, maybe, he was having an issue we discussed with an oil leak in the final drive of his 81GS, oil weeping from the brake shoe pivot tube, I think that part's called. And you'll recall when we discussed this, I had zero idea what may have been causing the issue. I mentioned maybe it was a casting issue, which was not what it was. Turns out, as things go, a post popped up on this on Adventure Rider just the other day addressing this issue. So rather than going into a bunch of detail on this, if you're interested on a follow-up on what this problem might be, maybe you're experiencing it, uh, there's a post on Adventure Rider on this, and Anton Larjadere uh, has some info on this on his webpage that also sheds some light on the topic. The email inbox, very, very busy recently, so thanks to everyone for writing in. Our email address, airheads, Add the S, airheads247 at hotmail.com. Drop us a line with your survivor bike story or just to say hello. We enjoy hearing from everyone. We can't get into all the emails, but let me just say thanks to Keith for sending in pictures of his all-original 1995 R100 RT, complete with the flip-out fog lights. Love those things. Steve sent us a nice picture of his survivor black and yellow Paralever GS and Roger, some photos of his 74 first year R90S. We are inching closer to launching our website where we'll feature more pictures and interviews in the Survivor Series. A reminder also on this to look for the Survivor Series articles in the BMW MOA Owners News. Those come out every other month. The feature for September of 2023 is a red R75-5, owned by David in Georgia, so be on the lookout for that if you are an MOA member, and you should be. 
Finally, a hearty hello to our listeners in Columbia, South Carolina, Oslo, Norway, Vancouver, Canada, and Argos, Greece. Yes, our SoundCloud statistics show us you all are very engaged and putting a lot of ears on the program in your respective cities. So thanks to everyone around the globe for tuning in. All right, time to dig in to our chat with Chuck Sherman. As noted, we're going to cover some great information on Krauser four-valve heads, the Krauser MKM-1000, among other topics, this week here on the Airhead 247 podcast. We're on the line with Chuck Sherman. And Chuck, I want to say, first off, thanks for taking some time to visit with us today. I sort of became aware of you and what you do with airheads and your interest uh, in airheads. You're a poster on Adventure Rider in, no surprise, the airhead section. And I think the moniker is Walla Man. Um, that said, I recently saw you were doing a refurbishment of some Krauser four-valve heads. So I want to get into that here a little bit. Uh, but what I like to do with all our guests here is just talk a little bit about what got you interested in motorcycles as a kid or a young adult, whenever that was, and then how did that translate, transfer into your interest in the, in the Airhead and the 247? Well, Darren, I, I sure do appreciate uh, you having me on the, the podcast and uh, it had, had sort of an interesting journey uh, to where I am today. Uh, when I was still, uh, I think, 13 or 14 years old, living in, a, in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, we lived right next to uh, my uncle and, and his wife, and he had gone out and bought a brand-new uh, R69S BMW with a great big Hosky tank on it, and that was the biggest, meanest, coolest motorcycle I think I had ever seen as a as a young kid. And uh he would occasionally take me for rides on that, and that, that was really quite a bit of fun. Um, not long after that, I had switched schools and ended up in on the work-study program in high school and uh, needed a job. And that was around the time that the movie Easy Rider came out. Uh, as folks may remember, uh, the, the late 60s was sort of an interesting place here in the U.S., and uh, so I went down to what became sort of the center of Chopperdom in Cleveland and got a job working at a company called Motorcycle Specialties, um, where most of what we did was spend our time uh, taking apart stock motorcycles and putting long front ends on them and 16-inch rear wheels and what have you. Wow. Let me jump in and say... Uh First off, that's similar to what people are sort of bemoaning is going on, and I mention this all the time with the quote-unquote cafe racer scene. Uh, what what you guys, what you were doing to motorcycles back then, I don't think was really any different. It was just a way to customize them and make them personalized for owners back then. I will say, though, with the choppers, the raked ends, sometimes rake front ends, no front brakes on occasion. They were definitely worse in the safety department than a lot of the cafe racers we see today. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. In <laughs> fact, but 
a funny story. Uh, there was a fellow that, that worked at that shop that actually had an old uh, plunger frame BMW. I think it was an R51-3 that he had customized. And I thought, man, that was sort of a, to me at the time anyway, it was sort of a cool piece. And uh, I finally managed to scrape together the money to buy my first BMW, which was a wrecked uh, 69 R69 US that had driven into the side of a car or something. The front end was all bashed up. And at the time, I could not afford to fix the, the bike using BMW parts. And we had a 750 Honda uh, in the shop that was getting ready to be chopperized. And it had a beautiful disc brake front end on it. Hmm. And nobody wanted it because everybody wanted it an extended fork with a spool wheel on it. And uh, so I ended up grafting that front end onto uh, that BMW. And uh, that actually led to a, a couple of other interesting interactions over time. Now, you mentioned you were in the West Coast. You mentioned San Diego. And in some of our communications uh, prior to our conversation today, uh, you had mentioned that you were in and around San Francisco at some point and became acquaintances, acquaintances with uh, Dwayne Ausherman, uh, who many folks know of and have heard interviewed here on the podcast. So I want to ask you about that. If you can sort of put, put us in the time and place, maybe the year uh, when you were out there in San Francisco, and if you, what sort of details you might remember uh, if you went to his shop or, or meeting him or what those sort of first interactions uh, were like. Living on the West Coast had the, uh, had the nice piece. Of, it was very hot in the summertime in Phoenix, but uh, the West Coast was quite nearby, so I would occasionally take the summers off and uh, ride over there. And once you're over there, oh, gosh, you can go north up Highway 1. Everybody's got to do that ride sooner or later in their life. And uh, landed in San Francisco actually a couple of times, and Dwayne ran a BMW shop there, and I needed, you know, parts for oil changes or whatever. Uh, and and met him there, not in a in a way that we became friends at that point in time, but uh, I was simply a customer. Sure. But it was interesting that that he was the go to place at that point. And uh, when you went in, he had been getting into uh, selling better fairings. That's right. And there were fairings all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Uh, most of which were not for BMWs, by the way. Uh, and uh, Dwayne also noticed the the uh, disc brake front end on my uh, Slash 2, which uh, he commented on a, a couple of different times. Sure. Uh, it had, had actually gone well north of there and up into Canada and, and that area. And uh, you had interviewed uh, another fellow from the forum, uh, Pokey, who... Uh, mentioned he worked at Filth and LBMW up in, uh, I believe that was up in the Vancouver area. That's right. And uh, actually stopped there. This is back in the, I guess it would be mid-70s at that time. Wow. Yeah, so I can imagine you if you've listened to a couple of those that you mentioned the uh, episode with Pokey, uh, I imagine it was pretty neat hearing some of these old stories and making these connections from some of these other riders 
whether it's a person or a place that you might not have, have thought about in some time? Oh, gosh, brought back all kinds of memories. I bet. Uh, of stuff. In, in any event, fast-forwarding, uh, had a couple of engineering businesses that I had that ultimately uh, sold back in the uh, right around the turn of the century here and uh, have spent most of my time just playing with old motorcycles since. But one other interesting uh, piece of background that ties some of this together, I had been... At that point, uh, I had a four or five bikes, and uh, all of them were old BMWs at that point. I had, a, had a several plunger uh, frame bikes that are 50s era, a couple of slash twos. And uh, when I needed parts for these things, they were actually getting kind of hard to find at that point. There wasn't a, a big reproduction parts business yet in the uh, slash two world. And there was a... Uh, shop on the East Coast that was uh, run by a fellow by the name of Stan Myers. It was Myers BMW or Myers Bike Shop, something like that. And Stan ran the oldest, I think maybe it was the second oldest BMW motorcycle dealership in the country. Uh, and I had been sending my checks off uh, in the mail and parts would arrive, you know, weeks or a month later, whatever. But he always had whatever I needed. And if I would call him, there was this sort of crotchety guy at the other end of the phone that would, you know, answer my questions, what have you. Um, I mentioned I had sold these businesses, and I was back on the East Coast, and uh, thought, you know, I've never met Stan before. Uh, it'd be really interesting to just go say hi to the guy. Uh, so I called him up and said, Stan, you know, this is Chuck Sherman, and. Uh, would, uh, I'm in town. Would you care to get together for lunch or something? He said, yeah, I remember you. And sort of that voice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, went over. Uh, we were sitting at lunch, and he looks at me and says, uh, you seem like a nice young guy. Would you like to buy my shop? And I looked at him. I was like, what do you mean? Well, Stan at this point was in his mid-80s. Oh, wow. And his wife had apparently told him she'd had about enough of the motorcycle business. She bought them a house up in the Adirondacks and given him six months to sort of clean up his act and get rid of everything. And uh, when we had lunch, he had 10 days before he had to be out of the Good building. Great. <laughs> so uh, we ended up going back and uh, looked through the shop and sure enough, wrote him a check and bought the inventory of what was Stan's BMW at that time. Wow. Okay. So that, that that's, I was not expecting where that story was going to go. That that's so that I have a number of follow-up questions on there and we could probably talk about just that aspect for a little bit, but so tell me a little bit about the inventory you bought and then you had the, I guess the logistics of getting it back uh, to Arizona. Well, uh, on the logistics piece, I went down to a U-Haul, rented the largest U-Haul you can rent. And mm -hmm. uh, he had a couple of high school kids that were still working for him. He'd actually lost the BMW dealership, uh, I believe, about a year or so beforehand. BMW was in the process of requiring all their dealers to upgrade right. and make it 
nice and what have you. But Stan had a friend that ran the BMW car dealership down the street, and if it had a BMW part number, he could order it. So that he kept his inventory current for parts. So uh, anyway, we packed up this this U-Haul, and uh, I drove it back to Phoenix and stuck it in the warehouse that I had. Um, at this point, I had accumulated uh, quite a few motorcycles. The, the engineering businesses that I had required me to do a lot of travel. And whenever I would travel in the U.S. or Europe, I would stop and visit old shops and buy interesting stuff and kind of stuff it away. But uh, Stan's was a, was a whole new level. I had never dealt with anything quite that uh, extensive before. I bet. And, and you had to go through and sort of organize everything and inventory, I, I would imagine. Well, let's just say we are still in the process of getting rid of the twenty-some years. I can imagine. So, do you still? I, so, aside from uh, you know a side stand spring or a, a, a wheel bearing or something like that, uh, what any sort of interesting, rare, unique tidbits that you still have or have hold on to out of that purchase? There was all kinds of uh, incredibly interesting stuff. Stan was also a racer and had a lot of performance slash two parts and pre-war whatever parts. Um, I, I ended up, oh gosh, I, I can't tell you how many times uh, going into boxes and looking through stuff has saved the day for a part that I needed for this, that, or the next thing or uh, what have you. But uh I, I, at the time, was doing a lot of restoration work, and before I had, uh, before we left the shop, I actually swept the floor to get all the original nuts and bolts. So I <laughs> had an inventory of old driving, uh, uh, whatever, you know, original hardware that, that has helped me put together bikes uh, ever since then. Most of, of, of that inventory at this point is long gone, but yeah. there was some Wow, that's a really interesting story, and I guess to some degree it helped uh, your negotiating position that he was really under the gun there with 10 days to go. Well, it, again, it was more a matter of you don't want to really take advantage of a person in a situation like that. I just I asked him how much he wanted. He gave me a number. I we went back, and he did want to keep a few things, so I gave him a, a pad of paper said, you know, make a list of what you want to keep, and uh he did and we went from there um uh, it was a, it was clearly a very emotional uh i can imagine career for him it was not it was sort of sad seeing it it happen but um hopefully there's a, a lot of people whose motorcycles have continued to run as a result of, of stan's efforts both when he had the shop and with all the parts that have, that, uh, have been sold uh by me over the years. So it, it's been a, a, it was an interesting uh, addition to that. Uh, the, the tie back of that to Dwayne in particular, uh, we began exchanging emails and whatever once the internet became sort of the way that people communicated. And at one point, uh, Dwayne asked if he could come down and take a look at some of the inventory that was there. And if you go up on Twain's uh, website, you'll see pictures of all kinds of, of rare and oddball slash two parts. Uh, there's a picture of a, a new old stock, uh, the, the 
muffler that fits between the two head pipes under the uh, transmission on a slash to uh, R69 from the late 60s. Those things are, are unobtainable. And I had a couple NOS ones sitting in, in the boxes that I brought back uh, and a number of other things. But just a, we, we ended up sort of bonding over this ridiculous uh, uh, attention to all the, the details from back then at that point. Well, that's fun. That's that's great stuff. Yeah. yeah, those yeah I forgot about those crossover pipes. Uh, were exactly yeah behind the transmission um, on the slash two. The, you yeah, know, they had a there was a muffler specifically that, that was there only for a few years. Oh, okay. Everybody got rid of them, tossed them away. And if you want an authentic, and I don't recall the years in it right now, but if you wanted an authentic bike from that time, you have to have one. And uh, they are unobtainium. They don't exist anymore. Yep. Well, we all know about chasing those parts at one time or another. So, as I mentioned at the top of the um, of our chat here, I came across some postings you were putting on Adventure Rider in the Airhead section on reviving a Krauser four-valve head. And <clears throat> I don't know a whole lot about those. Uh, so, and I went a little deeper into your posts and saw the uh, work you were doing with those. Uh, it's plainly obvious uh, you've done your homework with those. So let, let's dig into uh, that part of uh, what, what your interests are and what you're doing now. Tell me just a little bit, Chuck, about the history of, of Krauser and their development in the in the motorcycle division all i really know about them on the front end is the bmw motorcycle owners of america and bmw motorrod have teamed up for a 10 percent rebate for moa member purchases of original bmw apparel accessories and all oem parts in essence if it has a bmw motorcycle part number moa members can earn a 10 percent rebate on the purchase. Those of you doing a big refresh or restoration on your 247, no doubt this can save you some cash. Or maybe you're in the market for a new riding suit or jacket, those are included as well. Every purchase made at a BMW Motorrad-based dealer in the United States, for example, Max or Bob's BMW, or online at shopbmwmotorcycles.com qualifies for the rebate. MOA members simply submit purchase information directly to the MOA for the rebate. Rebates are managed by the MOA and members are free to support any dealer of their choice where original BMW parts, gear, and accessories are sold. This promotion is scheduled to run through the remainder of 2023. So if you're already an MOA member, well done, and you've probably already taken advantage of this offer. If you're not an MOA member, visit the About section of this podcast for information on the MOA's free one-year membership promotion and start earning 10% back on all BMW parts, apparel, and accessories. Thanks to everyone at the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America for supporting our efforts here. Now back to our chat with Chuck Sherman. Tell me just a little bit, Chuck, about the history of, of Krauser and their 
development in the in the motorcycle division. All I really know about them on the front end is there was Michael Krauser, I think, was a racer. Uh, he developed uh, parts, accessories for BMW, had a relationship with BMW of some sort. Uh, but what going back, what do you know about about the history of that company and how they got tied in with uh, BMW motorcycles? Sure. Uh, so please understand going into this that what I know is all secondhand. Sure. For the different stories, so I'll relay what I what I suspect actually happened. Um, it's clear that uh, Mike Krauser was a was a outstanding racer and developer uh, back in the day. This would be back in the uh, 60s, 70s, 80s time period, I guess. And uh, he was, I believe he rode for BMW and was a factory rider for the sidecar machines uh, at one point. Uh, when Airheads came out, uh, he developed the luggage that uh, became sort of the standard for that through a company called uh, Michael Krauser Motorcycles, or MKM. So that was sort of his foray into developing a part or an accessory uh, for a BMW motorcycle, was the luggage system. I believe that is correct, okay. although there, he had been doing other things sure. at the time. But commercially speaking. Correct. Yes. Um, he also apparently was was involved in uh, building, either working with a factory or or not, uh, looking at ways to enhance the performance of the 247 uh, airhead engine. And uh, as I understood it, uh, this would have been about, I think, the, 78, 79 time frame. I was told this, I don't know if it's true or not, that BMW actually asked Krauser to develop a chassis for their racing efforts, hmm. which is where the MKM 1000 uh, motorcycle came into being. Right. In addition to developing the chassis, uh, he also developed the four-valve silverhead, which I found incredibly interesting at that time. When did you first see one of those? Well, I, I read about them along with everybody else in the magazines uh, during the time. And, and just to note, there's, there's a lot of discussion about whether uh, the Krauser MPM or the four-valve heads were... Uh, Krauser motorcycles or whether they were BMW motorcycles... The one thing I can tell you is that they had received a certification from the TUV, which is, I believe, the equivalent of like the Department of Transportation. That's right. Mm -hmm. And it strikes me that, that a small manufacturer like Krauser could never have afforded to go through that kind of certification without having either the, the direct or indirect support of a company like BMW to do it. Um, yeah, I sort of had I sort of had the analogy of, uh, and I don't know what it was like in Germany uh, back in the late uh, '70s and early '80s when that when that motorcycle came out, but it, it maybe similar to the AMG Mercedes relationship in, in a way. Could very well have been. Yeah. In any event, we we everybody read about this stuff, and you know you could buy at the time in, in the I think eighty. 
81 or 82 was the first time that they were actually available. Um, the other thing that, that leads me to believe that there might have been more of a relationship there. Um, at the time, if you wanted to race a motorcycle in uh, national or international competition, uh, the various uh, agencies that did that, the AMA and what have you over in Europe, had what they called homologation requirements, mm-hmm. which meant you had to build a certain number of motorcycles uh, you know, that needed to be available to the racing public to buy in order to qualify your machine for uh, competition purposes. Yeah, it seems that number was around 200 or, or something. Uh, it was 200, 250, depending yeah. on the year, whatever. But as I understand it, there were 250 MKM complete Krausers built, and there was another roughly 250 kits that were built hmm. that were uh, basically a chassis that you would use a, a donor bike to. And, again, uh, I don't know this, but when I hear numbers like that, they tell me that there must have been something about that racing effort that was likely taken into account in terms of the numbers that were built. So let's get back to the heads. So I'm curious, uh, when these were first introduced to the general public as as something you could buy, quote-unquote, as an accessory, uh, where were, I'm just curious, back then it had to have been magazines, uh, or, uh, lo- or local motorcycle shops or dealer networks that you were finding out about these, uh, where, what were, what, or, or maybe in a magazine, you know, there was a write-up in a magazine. So what was the sort of word on the street on those? And do you remember what, what the cost was, uh, of those back then? Well, the, the, the magazines claim that you would get about a 10, 12-horsepower boost just by bolting on the, the heads. Uh, and I believe that they were about $2,400 list price back Wow. Then. Good grief. You, you could have bought a whole motorcycle for that at that point. Holy cow. I was thinking maybe seven or $800. No, it was a very expensive accessory. Wow. And before I ever actually saw it, a set of them. I, I had thought about the numbers that were associated with them, and uh, going back to sort of the, the days when I worked at Mr. Cylinder with Doug Schaller, uh, at that time in, in 77, uh, the 77 RSs had 40 millimeter intake valves. Mm-hmm. If you look at that in comparison to the Krauser. The Krauser uses two 32-millimeter uh, diameter uh, intake valves. You do the math, you'll see that there's about a 60% increase in circumference area available to you for flowing air through the, the Krauser heads compared to a stock airhead. That's a big number. It is. And that got my attention, and I was determined that at some point I was going to get a set of these heads and uh, and start playing with them. How, how long did that take you? Well, it actually took me a, a long time. <laughs> I was I was busy running a, a couple of engineering businesses and just <laughs> never really had the time at that point. I had gone over to England for uh, a work-related purpose and uh, walked into a BMW shop there had a used set of 
heads and pistons and what have you sitting on a counter somewhere that they had just taken off of a, of a motorcycle because it had eaten the cam in the bike. And I saw those. I was like, we're taking those home. Managed to get them through the x-ray machine at the airport. <laughs> <laughs> just on your checked luggage, really. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Brought it back to, to Phoenix. And uh, I had had a, at that time, I had a, an 84 RS that uh, I had done a lot of work to and never seemed to get it to be quite what I wanted it to be, given the performance that you could get at that point in any of the Japanese four-cylinder bikes and what have you. And wasn't looking for uh, all-out, you know, racing performance, but just a really nice, torquey, punchy street bike that would still idle, uh, you know, do the things you want. And when you when you think about that, uh, you can bump a cam a little bit, but too much, and it becomes less rideable, shall we say, mm-hmm. on the street. Sure. Um, you can bump compression, which is a good thing to do up to the point that, you know, the gas that you can buy won't tolerate it anymore. Um, you can add a big bore kit, although at that time uh, there weren't, a lot of aftermarket cylinders and the studs on a 247, the spacing of it makes it a little hard to go much bigger than a 1,000 cc. That's exactly right, yep. So the Krauser seemed like an interesting way to to increase performance through increasing airflow the way I had been taught and maybe end up with what I was looking for. Well, I went ahead, I mentioned that these... uh, heads been used, and they had been used, they didn't look like they were hard used, they were, they were still in pretty nice shape, but the way that the head is designed, uh, and it has to do, I, I understand why they did what they did, but you basically use a short push rod that on the engine side uh, interfaces with a stock lifter. And then the head actually has a secondary lifter that that push rod pushes against. Mm. And that secondary lifter is what moves the the rocker that actuates the two valves uh, on either side in the head. And that secondary lifter uh, is a very heavy uh, piece. It's a steel piece, and it has a little plug in one end. And as I was trying to figure out what I had here. I stuck the, the lifters on a scale, and the lifters all weighed a, a lot differently from one another. And I didn't understand what that was. And I went looking for some help, which led me to uh, Perry Bichon at, uh, I believe it's Dallas BMW. He was in Dallas at the time. And Perry had been uh, playing with these things for quite a few years and had actually uh, run them, I believe, in a AMA Battle of the Twins bike uh, at one point. So I called him up and, you know, said, look, you know, I'm putting this motorcycle together. I don't understand why these lifters are all different weights and what have you. And he said, oh, they're probably full of oil. (laughs) I was like, what? And he said, yeah, the, the... plugs on the ends that uh, ride in the leak. 
And when you run them over a period of time, depending what the fit of the plug was in the end of the lifter, huh. uh, you'll get oil that will leak in there, and that oil bounces around, and the lifters get even heavier, and they destroy the can on the on the motorcycle. And it's like, oh, well, yeah, that's exactly what happened to the guy that uh, whose bike these came from. And he said, well, the first thing you need to do is you need to you know remove that, clean it out, put it back in and either silver solder or weld it up and clean it up and polish it, et cetera. Um, and then he started talking to me about some of the other uh, things that you needed to do with the stock heads, which was clean up the ports and uh, things of that nature. He was, he was really a helpful guy from that vantage point. Anyway, did all of that, uh, ran it with a, a stock can at the time. And, uh, I was really impressed with uh, how the bike ran. It, it, it picked up a lot of torque. It had a lot more punch than uh, uh, what I'd had before. Uh, and it was a little bit noisier from a mechanical vantage point, but not too bad. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. I mean, if you've got two sets of lifters, that's, that's definitely going to add some mechanical noise. But, um, you know, so be it for the performance ad- ad- advantage you're getting there. Was it... I'm curious, how long was it on there, and was it a stable, reliable format, uh, or how, I, what was your experience with it? So I, I rode that bike uh, with the stock Bing carburetors on it for probably three or four months, and then decided to try a set of uh, DeLordo 38-millimeter uh, carbs from a R90S. And the DeLordos were a, a definite improvement uh with the accelerator pumps that they had in them, the pickup was substantially better than the 40-millimeter bangs. Um, And I kept those on that bike. Oh, gosh, I probably had it for another year, year and a half until I needed some money in my business and ended up selling it, which I'd like to kick myself for. But uh, (laughs) at the same time, uh, ended up buying another set of uh, used heads from Perry, and actually found a set of NOS heads that I still have sitting on a shelf on a box waiting for a project uh, at some point. And the, the heads that you saw being refurbished mm-hmm. in the uh, Adventure Rider uh, thread are the heads that I had gotten from Perry, uh, oh gosh, probably 30 years ago. Wow, so you've been sort of sitting on those all this time and just recently got around to... Uh refurbishing them? Uh, well, the, the crux of it was that around the same time, a friend on the East Coast had somehow or another managed to get one of the Krauser MKM kits still in the crate. And he had some financial issues and called me up and asked me if I wanted to buy it, and I did. And it was sitting here, and I finally been working through all the different projects that I'd with over the years, got around to pulling the, the uh, MKM frame out of the box and begin uh, working on it. I, I had a, an 82 RS that uh, has been the donor for the project. So the two sort of started together. I pulled the, uh, the parts I needed off the, uh, the bike for the MKM chassis and uh, started working on the, uh, the engine and the retrofit of putting the Krauser heads on the uh, on the uh, short block that I was dealing with at that point. So, and the 82RS, 
uh, if I'm remembering correctly, would have sort of been the donor bike for the MKM 1000 right around that era. Exactly. Right? In fact, the MKM, uh, the build certificate, it was, I believe, I think it's either late 81 or early 82. So the, I, it, it was important to me as a collector or what have you, I wanted to have a, a donor that was the right, right. vintage uh, for the bike. Now, I, so, uh, we, I, we can't gloss over the fact that you bought also the MKM quote-unquote kit. So essentially that was what we all know now as the, the purple sort of birdcage or tre- trellis uh, frame, uh, and then the white uh, fairing, body parts, uh, and things. What else was included in the, in the purchase of that uh, quote-unquote kit? Well, the, the kit basically came with a frame, yeah. a wing arm, uh, the various body work pieces, the fairing, mm-hmm. the uh, front fender, there's some underbody stuff. There's a, uh, basically a cowl that fits over the gas tank and forms the seat in the, the rear section. Uh, and they actually came in both a, a bi-posto and a mono-posto, a, a single-seat and a double-seat mm. uh, version, a double-seat version. Um, and then it had a lot of little miscellaneous parts and pieces. Uh, as an example, it came with a, a Krauser-specific wiring harness, mm. which I'm ripping my out over now. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, uh, it had a, uh, uh, an assembly that... Uh, the spacing of the rear wheel and the frame is different than it is on a stock airhead. And it came with a, uh, a machine piece that allows you to space the, the wheel a little further off of the, uh, the rear drive uh, so you can center it in the chassis. Um, trying to think what other pieces and parts were in. Uh, I think that's pretty much it with regards to... Uh, now, was that new? I, surely that wasn't sort of an unused um, kit. I mean, somebody had had it at one time and disassembled it. Never been up. It was had never been assembled. Oh, wow. Fresh as fresh could be in that ugly purple paint that it came with. That's a, it's, that is a, let's just say, uh, Chuck, that is a bold color choice. One of the reasons so many airheads are still on the road today is because of great parts suppliers and enthusiasts like Boxer 2-Valve. William and Edward Plam at Boxer 2-Valve have years of experience with the 247 airhead, dating back to their first repair shop and dealership in the early 1980s. Boxer 2-Valve stocks and sources only premium parts and tools, so no need to worry if you're getting a cheap pattern or shortcut part. They simply don't carry them. Boxer 2 Valve has extensively researched which parts are correct for your motorcycle. Just enter your year and model and you'll see only the parts that fit your bike. That takes the guesswork out of the ordering process. Real-time stock information that is also available, so no need to guess what may be on back order that could delay your project. Also, if you're digging into a repair for the first time, be sure to check out Boxer 2 Valve's video repair series. 
These cover both twin shock and post 81 models and are great tutorials that go step by step through a variety of repairs and parts replacement procedures. The video series is a great workshop companion, one I've used many times over the years. So for all your airhead parts needs, boxer2valve.com. That's the number two, boxer2valve.com. Time once again for a visit with William Plam from Boxer 2-Valve, an important topic this week, no doubt, regular maintenance. Back on the line with William Plam from Boxer 2-Valve for another edition of Tech Talk, and this week, the importance of regular maintenance. Now, William, as we're talking today, we're sort of in the middle of summer, in the middle of riding season, but uh, as the weather starts to turn, uh, in various places across the globe, folks start thinking about uh, winter maintenance. Uh, and really, I guess what I want to, let me rephrase that, and saying regular maintenance on your bike. Um, my, the first thing I had here was, for me, uh, in my part of the country here in the Ozarks of Arkansas, December is kind of the downtime, and that's generally speaking where I'll park the bikes go through, do my oil changes, uh, regular seasonal maintenance, and those kind of things. Do you have, uh, sort of just to start this out, do you sort of have an annual protocol or time of the, time of the year that uh, you do with your bikes where, you know, you know, okay, it's it's December, I'm going to have a look at this and do that. What What's your sort of take on that just as a general overview? Well, I think it's it depends on, of course, where you live. Like right where, where I am here in North Carolina, it's 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 pretty hot right now. It's not really the best time to ride. I prefer spring and 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 fall really. Um, so, but the, so usually it's like you know after the winter, it, the spring is the time that I would get my bike ready for the new riding season. It's pretty much. Pretty much it. Once it once it gets a little bit warmer, and you want to go out there, and um, and, and and that's that's probably a, a good time to to take care of that stuff, and then it should carry you through the rest of the year. Yeah, I was talking with uh, one of the guests I've had on here a couple times is a fellow in my neck of the woods called Leo Goff, and he uh, did a lot of service. Uh, in Memphis in the 70s for uh, shops, uh, BMW dealers that were in the greater Mid-South area. And one of his comments to me was, most of the problems he saw on motorcycles, uh, whether it was even an airhead or maybe it was a British bike, he serviced a lot of different kind of bikes, was just the general lack of regular maintenance and the problems that can cause. And he saw that on just many occasions and I imagine you have too so I wonder if you can just sort of speak to the importance of following a, a regular maintenance routine absolutely you should go through and there's certain things you need to do on an annual basis whether you put many miles on the on the bike or, or not um, you, you know so you know it in the old days when we relied on these bikes, you know, you'd rack up 3,000 miles or whatever, and it was time for an oil change. That, that You'd do that, you know, in, in a couple months. But I don't know. I think a lot of folks aren't, you know, not riding the airheads that far. Some are, thankfully. That's really cool. But even if you only had 1,000 miles on it over the year, you, you know, you still need to definitely always change the oil. That's number one. Your, your engine oil, 
your your final drive, your gearbox, you really ought to ought to change that because it's not that the oil wears out, but it it it'll uh, suck in moisture, and um, and that will damage bearings, etc. So always change your oil. Um, it's best to do it at operating temperature, so you can go go for a ride and um, warm it all up really good and let that out and let it, I usually just let it drip out overnight if I have the time because that way you get get as much of the gunk out of there. So fresh oil, absolutely. Maybe as important, if not more important, is brake fluid. That's probably the most overlooked thing. It's kind of a pain in the butt. Nobody likes to really do it, but you, you got to um, change your brake fluid um, at least every couple years. I would say, but even better was here. It's not, an, it's not that big of a deal. And uh, a lot of the um, bikes, too, especially in the, in the early or the 80s in general, with the plastic uh, reservoir up on the handlebar, a lot of times those, those caps don't, aren't really that great of a seal, and the moisture will get in there and contaminate the brake fluid. So I think that's a, a, a big one. Um, Collect or valve adjustment is is more of a miles based thing. So you know every five thousand miles, maybe three to five thousand miles, you ought to go in and check your 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 valves. But if you but the, unlike the the fluids, it's more of a miles based thing. I think so. You if you're only putting a thousand or two on them, you know you you might be able to push that out every couple years. Really, I, that's what I think. A big one though, it, and often overlooked is lubricating the clutch cable up at the clutch handle. Um, the, the, the barrel of the clutch cable, as, as you actuate the clutch, that needs to sort of pivot in the clutch lever. And if the grease dries up, gets washed out, whatever, and that thing sticks, then basically your cable is bending back and forth every time you pull the clutch in. And just like you take a paper clip, if you bend it enough time, it'll break. And so um, taking that apart, cleaning it, putting some grease on there, that's an as-needed thing. You kind of have to look at it, see if there's still some fresh grease in there. Watch it. Actually watch what's happening with the cable as you pull the the lever that's actually pivoting in there. I think that's a big one because it sucks when your clutch cable breaks. (laughs) It does. I'm glad I, I had that in my notes here to mention, and I'm glad you brought that up because that was one of those things that I kind of was not on my radar I didn't really think about it until I watched the videos, and you brought up the importance of that, uh, the, the cable barrel ends, uh, and whether it's in the, in the lever or on the barrel end, for instance, on the clutch cable, on the actuating arm, uh, places like that. It, it really is important, uh, and so I'm glad, yeah. you men- I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I want to get back to a couple things. So first, the, the brake fluid. Uh, I... I want to say, for me, I always sort of do that as a habit every two years. But it really, it, it, you really know it's time to do it. You can just look at the fluid and tell it's discolored. I mean, you're pre- you've probably waited too long if you've got sort of a dark gray <laughs> brake color of the brake fluid. But it is, for me, I kind of do. I've noticed uh, every couple years, uh, especially on the under tank master cylinder bikes, which I've got, I've got a couple of, seems to be just about the right uh, time to do that. Um, on the oil filter, now, here's I've done this a couple times. I don't make a habit of it. A lot of times it might be dependent on whether I just happen to have 
uh, a filter handy. But I have gone on occasion, especially when I was younger, and I might not have had the money or the wherewithal to do it. But I would do an oil change, but I wouldn't do the filter every time. And that's not recommended, but I guess I'm saying it's better to change the oil than not. Uh, have you ever done that and just waited for a filter every other oil change? Yeah, I've done that. What, what, what I would recommend you, that one does is if, if you're not getting that many miles on it, um, I mean, obviously the filter is also kind of a, a time-based thing. You yeah. know, it's, it's, you got to pump so and so many, you know, hundreds of liters through itself before it gets plugged up, you know. But what you can do is you can maybe, re, you know, remove the bolts from the cover, leave the filter in there, even just loosen them so that you get some air in there because mm. there's a lot of oil that gets trapped in that in that oil filter cavity. And so if you just do that and then, you know, I think that the, the seals and everything will be fine to reuse, but that way you, 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 you let that air into that oil filter cavity so that it also drains then out. If you, if you ever take the drain plug out, and watch the, how much oil comes out, and then sort of once it reduces itself down to a little drizzle, if you if you then um, then remove the oil filter, you'll see quite a bit of oil hmm. comes out. Okay, from just from that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and let's let's just say, I mean, most of us these days, you know, it's not a problem to have you know a half dozen oil filters and. and stock, you know, at the house. I mean, I do that. I usually buy them in bulk. I think this is probably more germane. Let's say you're on a long road trip and, you know, for whatever reason, you don't have a filter or you've hit that 3000 miles, or maybe you went through some water or something like that, had a big water crossing. Um, that That's good to know about the, the filter that way. I never thought about that, just taking off the cover and letting it breathe uh, a little bit uh, to help that. Um, yeah. So you mentioned the valves, and so generally speaking, three to five thousand miles. You say that's a, a generally a, a mile uh, maintenance ticker. You know, you, you're wanting to check that after a certain number of miles. I, I've always found, for me, for whatever reason, I a lot of things seem to happen for me at three thousand miles. I, you know, valves, oil change. Generally speaking, I, especially on my GS, on my R80 GS, I'm about due for a new tire because uh, I buy not kind of a, I think is an IRC or whatever the brand is. Regardless, uh, it's kind of an aggressive knobby. So um, it generally needs replaced quicker than other tires. So 3,000 miles, uh, yeah, I'm doing oil and filter change. Uh, and when I'm doing that, even though it might not need it, I am changing the gearbox and the final drive oil, especially for me going through water crossings uh, a lot. I, I can't emphasize enough. If you go through water uh, and it gets up uh, above a, a certain level, I'm, I don't know what it may be up to the carbs uh, or if you're, let's put it this way, if your transmission uh, is submerged, you're going to have to change the oil. I mean, there's no two ways about it. I've learned that lesson the hard way. Uh, same with the final yeah. drive. If you don't have a vent uh, hose on the top. That's a good modification if you're like me going through water a lot. Uh, that's just the standard vent at the top of the final drive. That's a great place for water to get into uh, if you don't have a hose hose routed there. So those are always good things to check. At least check the the level and see the condition of the, the oil. 
Um, but suffice to say, I mean, I don't think you're going to be having to change a, a general street rider or just regular use rider. You're not having to go into the gearbox, drive shaft, or final drive every 3,000 miles. That's would you say generally, William? That's probably every uh, two years or you know 10,000 miles, something like that for your for those uh, spots. Yeah, I think that you could probably make that assumption if if, if it's if the bikes. Not outside a lot. Not been ridden, been uh, ridden in the rain, so it hasn't really been uh, exposed to a lot of moisture. You can you can probably push out a couple, you know, a, a couple years if if it's less than five thousand or six thousand miles. I think really, if I remember correctly, back when we are on maintenance schedule, we basically had like a three thousand to six thousand kind of intervals where we did the engine oil at three and then all the oils at six. Okay, that was kind of like. Rule of thumb, you know? That makes sense. That makes sense. So every other quote-unquote oil change, you would probably go ahead and do the 80-90 uh, the weight uh, all around the bike. Yeah, but I wouldn't push that out past a couple of years just because of environmental uh, impact, you know, from just moisture in the air, et cetera, you know. So I think the oil has like a couple-year lifespan. So even if you don't have the 6,000 miles on in two years, after it's been a couple of years, you really ought to change that oil, too. It's cheap insurance. So <clears throat> talking about, uh, again, sort of seasonal preparation and stuff, uh, I know, and this is probably more germane to guys who might be in a little cooler climate, uh, who don't have as long a riding season, and there's a lot of different ways to handle this. Uh, so what, how do you, when I say you, I'm just referring to the general public, how does one store a motorcycle in the off season. And the one thing I always hear different sort of comments and takes on is what do you do with the gas in the gas tank? And for the longest time, I would fill up the tank, put some fuel stabilizer in it, whatever you use, uh, and call it good. And generally speaking, that's fine. Um, what I've taken to doing the past few years, and I'm kind of glad I've, I've started this protocol, is I'll actually drain the tank, take the petcocks off, drain the tank, let it sort of, uh, and this is going to be in the winter months when it's a little bit drier, keep the gas cap off, keep the petcocks off, let the inside of the tank dry out, pull the fuel taps off. You're probably going to see a little gunk, maybe uh, some original tank liner there in the, in the catch basin of the fuel tap. Um, but I've taken to just draining the fuel out of the gas tank, blowing it out with the air gun, making sure, especially these days with ethanol fuel, some folks, you can't avoid it. I, luckily, I can. Uh, but there's always going to be, even if you, it, unless you take the tank off, turn it upside down, take the petcocks off, you're not going to get all the fuel and or maybe unevaporated water or gunk out of there. Uh, is, and so I'm st I've started doing that every year uh, as just a general protocol. Same thing, draining the carburetors, making sure there's no gas sitting in there. Am I being a little bit too obsessive there? What, what's your thought on that? Well, there's definitely two schools of thought, and that, yours is one of them. Okay. And I don't disagree with that. That's, that, that certainly works. Um, I've had a, I have a, a R100 RS. It's a 89 R100 RS. I keep it in Germany, and I've had it for, gosh, I think I got bought it in 2002 or three, something like that. So quite a long time I've had it. And um, 
even though, you know, because of all of the craziness, I haven't been back there in a few years to ride it, but I used to go every year and, um, like clockwork and, and my main focus was get my bike on the road, like sometimes the same afternoon that we, we got home, you know, it was like, I was, I was obsessed with it. So what I did all these years and it always worked for, for me is when I would leave for the, um, leave Germany, go back to the United States. Last thing I do is I go to the gas station, get the best fuel quality fuel I could, and fill it up. To him. And then my buddy, he's got a, a space where I could park the bike, so I put it in there. And then I pop the float bowls off and pour that fuel is from the float bowls. If there's no water in it, put it in the tank or just or just throw throw it out. But um, you get rid of what's in the float bowls, leave those dry, and the tank completely full. And then uh, take the battery out. I would take that out, put that in our basement, hooked up to a, a, a trickle charger, um, like an Optimate charger that doesn't actually, you know, it only draws current as it's necessary, so it won't overcook the battery. Yeah, and then a year would spin around, and I'd go back, bring the battery down, pop that in, turn the fuel on, and always just fired right up. Never had any any problems. Oh, and I put a little bit of fuel stabilizer in there too. Uh, but and then it it, it worked for me. At, and and I'm actually going back to Germany here in a couple of weeks. And I'm even though the bike's been sitting for a long time, I probably will drain the tank this time because it's been excessively long. Yeah. But I'm for for up to a year that worked out. That worked killer for me. Yeah. Yeah, I remember you mentioning that uh, in a story uh, before and. Uh, or we, yeah. whether we talked about it or it was somewhere else, maybe I heard you mention that. Um, yeah, there are two schools of thought there, and I guess for me, I think you know, my dad, uh, he had a he had a Mystic and a Slash Six for a number of years. That was always him his mo. He'd fill it up almost to the top, put the stable in there. Of course, it was never a problem. And I guess yeah. um, you know, for me and some other guys, it's just a matter. Really, it's a matter of what you're comfortable with, and you know, especially in the winter months, if, if you're retired or you've got a lot of time on your hands, you know, there's no harm in taking the tank off, cleaning the petcocks, draining some of the excess moisture or stuff that can accumulate in there. Especially these days with ethanol uh, fuel. Um, I, like yeah. I said, I haven't had to worry about that. Is that an issue in Germany? Do they have? Uh, can you still get non-ethanol? Or I don't even know what is the gas situation over there. Yeah, they've got they've got they've they've got um, they call E10, mm-hmm. and that's ten percent ethanol. But then they have the super, and they have like one hundred and two octane and oh wow, really cool stuff. Yeah, and um, and that's a lot of that is and that is that is uh, pure pure uh, gasoline. So you can you can definitely get that the good stuff. Wow, and that's what I usually run in in the, in those bikes. Another point. yeah, so there are those two schools, and one of them one of them requires a lot more work. But I know it's deviating a little bit from the uh, airhead topic. But if anybody's got an older K bike, yeah, draining the tank on those is really a very important thing to do every uh, every once in a while because especially there right on the left hand side of the gas tank is kind of a deep spot, and that's where oil or water will um, sort of. Uh, Collect it. The water sinks down in the gasoline, and then um, the tanks are aluminum, and so you see a lot of times on a on a K bike that the tanks have corroded through, and 
they, they really really need to drain those things completely every periodically to uh, prevent that from happening because it's um, yeah it can be dangerous actually if the tank starts leaking. I'm glad you mentioned that because I just bought a K75 as a matter of fact a couple months ago. Uh, and, uh, so yeah, that, uh, and I'm, I'm going to be doing a, uh, a, a, a non airhead content podcast, I guess on that, on, on buying that bike and some of the peculiarities of the, of the K bike. But, uh, yeah, that's good to know. And that's something, uh, I had heard. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, let's, oh, yeah, we can, we can talk about that too. Some in a future podcast, if you want to, that's I would what, love I to, like. yeah, All right. I would love to, yeah, we'll make a note and, uh, yeah, that'll be fun. The other thing I want to bring up here, William, and this is sort of, um, <coughs> excuse me, and this is sort of anecdotal to, to my experience and I don't think it's unusual for anybody else, but I seem to run across this more maybe so than, than other folks might is. Cleaning your motorcycle. And now I'm not talking, you know, detailing uh, and getting out the toothbrush and that kind of stuff, but just a general clean and wipe down. And the reason I say that is, again, people have heard me talk about this ad nauseum, but where I live, it's even riding, you know, riding in today, we just had a rainstorm uh, here. So I'm going through a water crossing. I've got mud puddles, uh, you know, rocks, all this kind of stuff. And my bikes get muddy and dirty. And, you know, usually once or twice a week, I'll at least just take a warm rag and just wipe them off, get, you know, some of the accumulated dirt off and things like that. But I bring this up to say I can't mention how many times in the process of that, just wiping the bike down, cleaning it, uh, you know, maybe taking some plexus and, you know, cleaning off the bugs off the tank or whatever. You almost it's not unusual to come across something you otherwise would have missed that maybe there's a loose nut or the pinch bolt on, you forgot to tighten the pinch bolt on the rear axle uh, or the uh, foot peg bolt uh, is loose or, or, you know, you've got a turn signal stock that's about to rattle off and, and fall off that you wouldn't have otherwise noticed if you just didn't take a few minutes uh, to, to clean, uh, clean the bike. And I'm just, I don't know if you have a protocol or procedure on that, but I'm just saying that from my perspective, I noticed that a lot. Uh, and that that's a really good way. Just, I guess, a tip for me, if I'm able to give a tip is uh, sitting in one thing I like to do, obviously, and I've heard other people talk about this in their ownership with Harleys, uh, would be just, you know, have a, a couple beers uh, uh, in the refrigerator and sit down uh, with a rag or what I would hear from old Sportster, uh, Ironhead Sportster owners is buy a six pack and just go over the bike and tighten all the bolts uh, while you're having yeah. a few beers. But uh, I'm wondering if you've ever sort of had that experience or just, you know, casually attending to the bike, talk about uh, how you can sort of catch things or if that's ever happened to you. Oh, it's totally happened to me. In fact, the, cleaning the bike is, is a, is a, a period of time where you can really sort of get um, an idea about a lot of things about the bike, sort of bond with it. And you're looking at, you're looking at parts, you know, you're sitting down in your butt, you know, wiping the fork legs off or something like that, yeah. you know, or the wheels. And you're, you're like, check, you're checking out every little piece of the motorcycle. And that's super important. It's like, to me, it's like, you know, if you don't pet your dog, you might not find that tick, you know, <laughs> that's a good point. And, <laughs> So um, that's that's really um, 
a part a part of part of ownership is uh, uh, and maintenance is is keeping the bike clean, and that is the best time to inspect uh, all those little details that can lead to trouble or just inconvenience. Yeah, and the one I think I always do with a little trepidation, especially if I've had the motorcycle a while, is uh, especially on an older twin shock is uh, or your front end, you've got fork boots on there. You grab the fork boot and sort of uh, move it up and down on the stanchion inside of there. And if it's grippy and the rubber grabs onto it right away, you know you're fine. But if you feel it, it's mushy and it slides up and down, you know you've blown a fork seal and it's it's time to replace it. You might not catch that uh, just without that simple little check. That's just one thing uh, I've noticed. That's so true. Yeah, no, what you're saying is absolutely right, and it's part of part of part of what you got to do. It's part of the maintenance of procedure, I'd say, pre-ride yep. check, and it can be done at the end of the ride when you know that's when you want to clean the bike, um, so you don't you know get rid of all the bugs and stuff like that before that they start to eat away at the paint and what have you. Yeah, but then you ready for next or next ride? You, you, you if you might might identify an issue or a leak or something like that that you normally wouldn't even noticed. Yep, and uh, again having a nice. Uh Having a nice cold beer next to you while you're doing that, that's one of life's simple pleasures for me. That doesn't make it worse, that's for sure. <laughs> Last thing on this point, William, um, I don't want to generalize too much here. There's always exceptions. I, I would say, as a whole, um, BMW riders, airhead riders, it, it specifically, staying with our topic and what we deal with here on the program tend to be on the higher end of the maintenance keeping notes repair repair notes all, all that kind of stuff more so than other brands or motorcycles i've encountered now, i've owned some other ones over the years and there are always conscientious owners for all types of brands um but one thing i want to say is uh, that's when a, when we're, when you're buying a used bike and it's not too uncommon to have when you're buying from uh, a private seller they've kept really nice maintenance records even if it's just a little uh handheld uh note binder you know a little small uh handheld notebook binder or no, notebook paper or whatever you can see uh, you know there there's the date and then the oil change you know keeping little notes like that right. one one thing i've done that's helped me a lot over the years. I started this practice <clears throat> maybe about four or five years ago when I started getting more bikes. You know, I have five now, so it helps to keep notes and so I can remember what I've done when. If you've just got one bike, it's a little bit easier uh, to remember. But I've bought like these little uh, receipt books, work order books. So, you know, it's got the white page and then the yellow page and the pink page and you've got the little carbon thing in there and then i just write down on there okay here's what here's the date mileage on the bike i write down the work i've done the parts i installed tear that out put it in a little folder with that particular bike and then uh so i've got a record of the maintenance or whatever repair i've done i need to do that so i can remember what i've done on it but then conversely if you go to sell the bike that I, I, that's important. So, what uh, what are your thoughts on that? As far as just BMW folks sort of being on the uh, high end of the bell curve doing that, and what if any sort of little things like that do you do to keep up with with maintenance on a personal bike or in the shop? 
there's no doubt that that uh, there's a lot of BMW owners who take great notes and uh, and keep all the receipts and all that stuff. It's definitely been my observation as well, and maybe part of that reason why is they tend to put more miles on the bikes too, you know. But um, the, the, that's the, and that's not just a thing here. I think it's a worldwide. When I when I bought my RS. Uh, some years ago in Germany, um, the owner had absolutely meticulous uh, records and showing everything everything that had been done. It's, it's it's really kind of kind of cool to to know all, all those details about the about the bike. Another thing that works pretty good to keep the receipt is a really good thing. But if you have one of those nowadays, those label makers aren't aren't uh, stupid expensive, and most people probably have one. And that's a great way to um, note the mileage. And the date that you did what you did, uh, and put that like uh, underneath the seat or something like that. And those don't have those plastic um, label maker things. You, if when you go to peel it off, it doesn't leave a lot of goo on there, and like a, like a, a real label would. And so that's a, that's another way to, to to document, at least from time to time, what what maintenance you've done. I've seen a lot of folks do that, and I think that's pretty smart. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. I never thought about that. And one, I, I just had this thought. Uh, I've I started doing this here on the past few bikes uh, I've owned, and hopefully I'll never have to go back and reinspect this. But when I've taken, for instance, when I go in to do the rear main seal, uh, take the transmission out, you go through the trouble of doing all that. I'm in there. I usually take a sharpie and and just write the uh, the date on. Just put RMS and then put the date on there. So. You know, 20, 30 years from now, whatever, somebody buys the bike after I'm done with it uh, and they open it up and they'll say, oh, yeah, okay, that's the last time somebody was in here. Um, just like a, yeah, little, cool. a little time capsule uh, for fo folks to know. So little things like that make the difference. And whatever works uh, for you out there as far as your maintenance schedule and keeping notes and things like that, let's just say we all appreciate that because if we're buying a used bike from you, it's good to know. Uh, the history and what's been going on. So, William, as always, uh, I appreciate the time today. Great tech talk today on maintenance, and we'll look forward to catching up with you next time. Yeah, wait. Thanks so much, Darren. Nice talking to you. Up some great tips from William. As usual, back to our final segment as we wrap up the program and more with Chuck Sherman. That is a, let's just say, uh, Chuck, that is a bold color choice, but uh, yeah. appropriate for the time. So if it was uh, essentially an NOS uh, box you're opening up there, so were, were there instructions? Uh, what other sort of, yeah, you're wondering what else was in there? Assembly instructions, other information, specs, that kind of stuff? Or were they just selling the the kit and uh, assuming everybody would know what to do with it. it. It did come with basic assembly instructions. There isn't really much there. Uh, and a, a set of uh, drawings which show all the parts and pieces, literally just like a BMW uh, parts book would have or microfish would have in sure. it from the time. Which is another reason which leads me to believe that there was a very close association between Krauser and BMW in the making of this thing. Uh, other than that, really not a lot of, it, it assumed you had a clue as to what you were doing to, to pull <laughs> one together. 
Yeah, I would guess so. Now, I, 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 I'm not going to go through your wallet here on this, but what were those kits? Do you remember what the kits were new or when they were sold? I mean, we know the heads back in the day were $2,400 new. Uh, so what would, what would, do you know what that kit would have listed for if you were just wanted to purchase it like that? Darren, I don't know how much the kit itself was, but at that time you could, in, I believe in that 81, 82 timeframe, you could buy a new, uh, R100 RS. I believe they listed for about $3,500, complete mm-hmm. MKM 1000 without the Krauser heads on it, was right around 10000 Wow. So I would presume the kit was somewhere in between, but, uh, wow, it was, they were a lot of money back then. Yeah, good grief. Yeah, I, that's, well, I'm not surprised. I mean, that's a, uh, a as they say, bespoke, uh, handmade uh, piece. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is unique in its sort of design, uh, has some. It, it, it's actually very well thought out for the most part. Uh, some interesting sort of uh, design anomalies that I would have hoped they would have addressed in a in a different way. But hey, it is what it is, and uh, we're putting it together like that. So where where are you now in the assembly process? Um, I've seen some photos on uh, the Adventure Rider. Post that you've done, um, I seem to recall you've got, you know, wheels on, uh, body work is on. Where where are you now? Well, the, the chassis is pretty well put together okay. uh, at this point. Uh, I do have a few minor things that need to be cleaned up there, but nothing of consequence. As I mentioned, I'm, I'm in the midst of doing the wiring uh, with the uh, RS and the, actually, I guess the 247 series bikes, the vast majority of the, the connections that need to be made are actually in the headlight shell. And so the way that I typically approach putting one of these bikes together is I wire the headlight shell off the bike and then install it because that way I can work with it much easier. It's just a lot easier to get in, get to the little, uh, circuit board that's in the back of the headlight Sure. That, that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, if you're... So it was an 80, an 82 bike, uh, an RS, and for, forgive me if I, I can't remember or don't know, but that would have also had the circuit board in the headlight? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they still... I, I believe they have that there until at least 84. Uh haven't owned a later bike than it is. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. can't be completely sure. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not too sure either. Um, but okay, that's interesting. And yeah, that, that well, that makes a lot of sense because it can be a chore uh, with that circuit board and and getting in there. I mean, you've got to have. You know, I always seem to use hemostats or something. You know, when I'm pulling and uh, plugging in wires, a, a good set of. Uh, magnifying glass glasses uh you know on my head so i can see in there real clearly it's not the easiest area to do uh electrical connections let's put it that way 
exactly all of the above. The, the slash two headlight buckets are pretty much the same way in the, uh, the plunger ones where they have a, a circuit board that's the ignition switch and what have you that's attached to the top of the headlight shell and trying to get in there to make all those connections and see what you're actually doing is quite difficult. So that's where I started the process of always doing the headlight wiring first and then installing everything from there. Very slick. Uh, I'm taking notes on that, although I've never had a bike down to that specific uh, <clears throat> point where I, I was doing that from, from scratch. I'm going to remember that. So, okay, you're in the midst of the wiring now. What, what ultimately with the engine? So I've seen what you've done with uh, the four valve heads have sort of been refurbished. Uh, I, I think you're about done with those, if I recall. So what's the rest of your plan for the bike engine performance-wise? Are you going to stick with the standard, uh, standard cam, a 3.3.6 cam, and what are you planning uh, on for carburetors? So uh, the the engine is effectively assembled at this point. Okay. Uh, the uh, the cam is not a stock cam. Uh, I apologize. It's in the the uh, the thread. I don't recall the the manufacturer. It might be Wudo, but I'm not oh sure. yeah, yeah, sure. They made a cam specifically for the kit after they started having problems with. Uh, mm cam being eaten up by the, the lifters. When you when you really look hard at what Krauser did, the uh, the four valve design of the head is actually very innovative, and it, and it takes advantage of the pent roof designs that are much more modern in terms of combustion chamber design these days and what have you, or then I should say. Uh, but they did add a lot of mass to the valve train, which is not a, a good thing in the grand scheme. And it does limit the ultimate RPM. And that was one of the things that, that Perry said, is that they just couldn't get the bikes to, to spin fast enough, long enough, uh, and stay together uh, in a racing situation. So the, the cam that I have uh, is specifically designed with a little longer ramps uh, to open more gently and close more gently than the stock cam, but it really doesn't provide any significant changes to the duration or what have you. Um, so I'm not expecting to see uh, any major changes from that. Uh, I did fit a set of uh, Delorto 38s on this one like I had previously mm -hmm. and expecting those will work just fine on the on the bike. Had you thought about knowing what you, you know, the history and going back to the years talking with uh, Perry uh, and your initial experience with the four valve head, now here you are all these years later, had you thought about uh, maybe in your quiet time or when you're in the garage, hey, there probably, there might be some improvements or changes I could do on this on my own. Uh, but maybe you were hesitant to do them because you didn't want to foul up, you know, an original vintage piece like this. I mean, if you could go back, uh, and, and it sounds like the weak point uh, is that uh, that double lifter scenario. Uh, ha have you thought about how you could have, have improved upon this and made it a more stable, practical modification? Well, um 
using with, without radically changing things. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the first things I think I would have done had I been in in the Krauser situation would have been to to go to a, a titanium lifter, secondary lifter, simply to to reduce weight, uh, and probably would have have looked at some other areas to use uh, lighter metals. I really don't know what their uh, what their thinking was at the time. But uh, that's probably would have been the, the first thing I would have done. Beyond that, um, the, the geometry that you're working with on a 247 would have made it very, very difficult to accomplish what he did and still have space for uh, the valve train and the, the four valves and what have you. Um, it's, it's pretty clear to me that BMW took note of this. And the reason I say that, um, another long story we won't get into uh, here, I don't believe, but I ended up uh, back at the factory a number of times. I I was doing some work in Germany and uh, got to be uh, friendly with Fred Jacob, who was running the uh, mobile tradition uh, or the archives for BMW at the time. And uh, through that relationship, ended up having an opportunity to... Uh, see a lot of the prototype work that had been done back in the 80s uh, that ultimately led to the oilhead bikes uh, that, that came out the next decade. And it, it's pretty amazing some of the things that BMW tried. I, I wasn't allowed to take any pictures at that time. I think you managed one spy photo that you posted, right? Uh, I I, I I was I did take a couple, but not a lot. But uh, <laughs> in any event, they they really tried some really interesting things, and it was clear that the engineering department, anyway, was interested in in figuring out how to upgrade uh, the motorcycle line to a, a more modern uh, head design. Uh, whether the corporately at that time they were interested, I think the answer pretty much speaks for itself. Right, uh, the fact. We've kept that line going for as long as they did before they came out with the oil heads. Uh, speaks pretty loudly. But uh, as far as what I could do in, in my with my own skills and tools here, uh, I'm satisfied with to, to use what I have. And, and uh, I've, I've done a little bit of port work just to clean things up. If you look at the, the new old stock set of heads, uh, it was clear Krauser was leaving that work to whoever purchased uh, the uh, the head kit. Uh, these are pretty raw castings that, that do need to be cleaned up and, and ported appropriately and what have you. So, you know, one thing we had talked about uh, a little bit earlier here, and I want to want to revisit this again was, and you mentioned having some discussions uh, with the fellow there at Mobile Tradition. Um, what, in as much as BMW, the motorcycle division, they were not necessarily known that from what little I know about it, partnering with a third party or a second party uh, to come up with other things uh, like this, it, the, the relationship between Michael Krauser and BMW and in the year that they year or two that they sold those MKM bikes, 
Um, it was a unique partnership, something we didn't see hardly at all. I mean, it, it, I think it's really an anomaly, in, 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 at least in the airhead range. I don't know about later models. Somebody tells me that BMW still makes bikes, apparently. I, I, I'm not too familiar with <laughs> what's out there these days. But uh, it was really a unique sort of a pairing back then uh, that we, we haven't seen anything like that. Now, there are other manufacturers uh, who have done this. Uh, Harley and Porsche famously have gotten together a couple times, once for an ill-fated, I think it was called a Nova or something, uh, V-Twin, and then later the V-Rod might have been some collaboration, if I'm remembering, remembering correctly. But this was really a unique thing uh, for, for BMW to do. Yeah, I would agree with you on the, on the Harley side. I mean, you have the whole relationship that they had with Buell. Yeah, for, that's right. For, their, for years. Uh, but in terms of BMW's uh, business of, of partnering with outside vendors, I, I don't get the impression that they uh, that they saw that as a positive thing for the most part. And the Krauser relationship, whatever it was, uh, based on what my experiences over the years and my understanding of their history, uh, was a pretty unique uh, relationship as far as working with a that closely with a, a third-party vendor. Yeah, and I guess really, you know, for somebody like you with your engineering background, your racing background, your love of, of the uh, motor uh, BMW motorcycles, this all sort of comes together uh, in this uh, project you're working on on the, on the MKM right now, doesn't it? That would be a, a perfect description. You know, <laughs> having, having now done many, many restorations of many, many different marks, uh, I always enjoyed looking at how the engineering groups at these companies solved various problems over time. Uh, the Germans have their own very unique way of, of elegantly solving problems, and uh, the, the Krauser to me represents sort of the epitome of what they could do back in that time period for what's there. So it's been a lot of fun, and, and I've really been enjoying it. Uh, I'll enjoy it more when it's all done, but you know what? <laughs> As I tell people, my my goal is to go out into the shop every day, make a little bit of progress moving forward, and not screw anything up. And if I did that, it's a good day. It's a good day. That, hey, you know what, uh, Chuck? I think that's a sentiment we can all agree with uh, when you're spending time out in the garage. I don't want to gloss over the fact that um, you did – you mentioned visiting the mobile tradition, uh, and I'm sure you were looking at some – cars and uh, other uh, BMW vehicles uh, while you were there, not exclusively bikes. But uh, tell me a little bit more about uh, that experience and uh, uh, some of the other unique things you might you might have seen there uh, on that trip. Well, the, the, this particular trip was, was pretty interesting. Um, I'll give you a very short part of a long story, okay. but I had been looking for a... Uh, a 1936 BMW R5. Um, it, my collection anymore is, is made up mostly of what I consider to be sort of the standard setting motorcycles from any particular period. And the R5 to me was sort of the beginning of a design that 
carried all the way through the certainly the Slash 2 series in terms of the layout and what have you. Uh, BMW going back to a tubular frame from a pressed steel frame. Uh, this was a, a twin cam motorcycle, which ultimately moved into the R51 slash 2 series uh, post-war. But I've been looking for one, and just like in any uh, uh, hobby, what have you, when the values of things get to be significant, uh people begin to, shall we say, play with authenticity. Mm -hmm. And there weren't very many R5s ever imported into the U.S., so the pickings here were very slim. Um, and as I would find bikes that were for sale, I would take pictures of the serial numbers, both of the frame and the engine, and send them back to BMW and say, are these real? Because they have records of virtually every motorcycle they ever produced. Uh, back in the archives, or at least all the ones I'm worried about. And for over the course of about 10 years, virtually every R5 I found that was for sale here or in Germany had questionable numbers. Either <laughs> the frame had been modified or the engine had been modified or, wow. or what. And uh, I had finally sent a note over to uh, Fred Jacobs saying, look, Fred, you know that I've been looking for one of these things for, you know, however many years. Uh, I haven't been able to find a real one. Uh, I don't care if it's in boxes or if it's, uh, you know, assembled, uh, but I'd really like to have one before I die here. <laughs> help, help me out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, give me a hand here. And, uh, Interestingly enough, about, uh, oh gosh, it must have been about three, four weeks later, uh, I got an email from a fellow at the factory letting me know that they were uh, consolidating some warehouses uh, in Europe, and they had come upon a 1936 R5 that was, quote-unquote, excess to their needs. Hmm. Would I be interested? <laughs> and as you can imagine, yes, was. Very interested. So, yes, you're booking a hotel and a flight, I would imagine. Well, we went back and forth for a little bit, and I asked, you know, how much and when. Uh, was told, uh, oh, it would be about two years. And I was like, two years? And the response was, well, of course, we would restore it for you. And my response to that was, well, actually, I'd sort of like to be the one. That does yeah, that. yeah, yeah. And their response was, well, if that's the case, you would have to come over and inspect it because it's really not in very good condition right now. And I thought about that for a millisecond or two and thought, wow, that's an invitation to go visit the factory and <laughs> booked the plane ticket and headed to Germany. Now, let's, okay, so, wow, that's, I was not expecting that part of the story. Again, so a nice... Oh, there's there's lots, but in any event, I got over there. Yeah, and uh, they were getting ready at the time. I don't remember what anniversary it was, but it, for a big anniversary of BMW production, whether it was cars or bikes, and the uh, the original factory in, uh, I believe it was in uh, Munich, uh, had been converted to the the private collection area, and it was sort of a corporate center at that point. And they had apparently decided to tear it down and rebuild it to get it ready for whatever this milestone uh, was. 
because of that, they had to move the entire private collection out of the building. Hmm. And they had rented a bunch of warehouses out on the outskirts of Munich uh, to put everything in. And uh, apparently this was also part of this effort to consolidate warehouses at the time, I guess. I don't remember the details. But I went to see the bike, which was out at one of these warehouses, and it was like, wow, there's all kinds of stuff here. This is really pretty incredible. And after I did the inspection of the bike and we figured out the details of purchasing it and what have you, uh, they said, hey, would you like to look around? <laughs> and I was like, bet. <laughs> and I spent three days with a flashlight walking through a oh, good grief. warehouse. And there must have been you know, a couple million square feet of warehouses there. I didn't get through everything. But every time you walked around a corner, you found another piece of BMW history that had been archived into uh, what have you. And uh, it was truly an amazing experience. Wow. I, I just can't begin to describe some of the, the interesting things that, that I found stashed you know, away in this warehouse. Wow, that's, that's amazing. So what, kind of condi- what was the, the bike? What kind of condition was it in? Uh, the bike actually was in pretty terrible condition. Okay. It had obviously been, uh, been, had the, the, the socks written off of it, so to speak. Um, and uh, when I got it, uh, the engine was, was locked up. It had been sitting in a, in a damp warehouse, if I had to guess, for 30 or 40 years at that point. Um, when I finally got around to taking the, the motor apart to figure out what was wrong with it, uh, turned out that in, in, in the early twin cam bikes, uh, the oiling system for the heads is completely contained in the heads. It's just there's a little reservoir of oil underneath the rockers, and it splashes around and oils everything. And uh, you literally, to change the oil in the heads, you take the rocker box cover off, uh, put it back on, and refill the head through a little uh, plug that sits on top of the rocker box. In any event, uh, it turned out that whoever did the, the last assembly of this machine had installed one of the rocker shafts upside down. Oops. And the result was that the oiling hole that for the oil to go through the the shaft and then into the uh, the needle bearings for the rocker arm uh, had been starved with oil and a rocker had seized. Um, so that was why the bike was ultimately parked, I'm reasonably certain. But once it was parked, over time, the rings uh, in the cylinders had rusted into mm-hmm. the cylinders themselves, and that's what locked the motor up. Um, the surprising thing was that just about everything inside the motor was brand new or almost new it was in that piece or that part of it was in incredibly good shape so uh so it sounded like that damage might have happened early on in the, in its life oh i can't imagine this thing made 500 miles yeah. before it light up the, um so i took apart cleaned it up uh bored the cylinders put some new pistons and rings in it uh cleaned up the heads and fixed the uh the rocker arm and uh Put it back together and decided it was it was so original that it, it still had the original screen filter that fits down into the top of the uh, the gas fill in the gas tank <laughs> and uh, 
decided that it was just so original that it was that I would only do a mechanical restoration on it uh, and leave the uh, however many you know years of patina that it had uh, accumulated just the way it was. And uh, the bike is up and running and riding now, and uh, I have a great time riding it around. Wow, a lot good. of fun. Yeah, good for you. I, I can appreciate a, a survivor bike uh, more so than I can a restored bike. Well, it, it is original down to the hardware that holds it together. I mean, wow. it really is an amazing motorcycle. That's amazing. All right, Chuck, so I want to get you out of here on a handful of questions we ask everybody on the way out. Uh, as, sure. as I was listening to your story, especially about the R5, I was wondering how I, how and if I wanted to modify one of the questions which I always ask, which is, you know, what are your four favorite bikes uh, of the Airhead Run, uh, the Mount Rushmore, so to speak? And we generally keep that from 70 to 95 or 96 to cover the 247s. But maybe in this case, since you've had such an experience with the, with the wide range uh, of the motorcycles, what what would you say would be the if, if you could have four BMW motorcycles in your garage, just four? Uh, what would your four favorite ones be? Gosh, uh, the no, R five, obviously. The, the R five would definitely be one. It's it's probably what I would consider to be the the first BMW that you could really ride and tour on. Um, and I, I've enjoyed having it. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, probably my my favorite motorcycle of all time is an R sixty eight, which was sort of the the plunger sport version. Uh, it has a very similar engine to an R sixty nine in it, uh, and uh, I have I, I love mine. I just have uh, probably my like I said my favorite bike of all time. Um, I, I'm a big fan of the plunger bikes, uh, but uh, I like the slash twos. I, I, I actually like the telescopic fork of the plungers better than the Earl's fork. It doesn't ride as well, but I think it handles a little better. Uh, but I have a, a 55 R69, which uh, I actually just got back from uh, the AMCA Borrego Springs run on and uh, put a couple hundred miles on it there and had a lot of fun with it. Um, the, uh, I like R90Ss, but honestly, I'm not sure that that's the best, uh, 247 model. Uh, I actually like the 77R100Rs of, of all of the stock bikes the best. Um, I, I literally just got rid of mine, uh, uh about a year ago. I just, it, it's, it's big and heavy, and I had a hard time putting it on the center stand and decided that it had to go, but that would be on my list. I'm hoping that the, the Krauser doesn't have a center stand, so all I have to do is... <laughs> <laughs> so hoping that it will... Uh, yeah, that's fine. But uh, that's sort of my view of the world. I know folks have lots of different uh, views. I, I've never owned a GS or any of the, uh, the adventure bike uh, variants, so I, I can't speak to those. Um, I will say uh, back in 86, uh, I bought a, a lightly used uh, K100 yeah. uh, RS. Um, 
And uh, living in Phoenix, that is not the motorcycle to have. H-O-T, hot, I would imagine. Uh, uh, Yes. Uh, Lots of folks talk very fondly of those, and I suppose they must live in other climates. But uh, that one would not be on my list, and uh, (laughs) that was the first and last K-bike I ever owned. Hey, now you know, right? Now, Now you know. Now you know. Okay, so another another, and this uh, I'm throwing you for a little loop here because I didn't put these on your questionnaire sheet, but we'll go. We'll, I'll ask you anyway. So uh, another one I like uh, to check in with folks on is so a scenario where you were riding, uh, you had a breakdown, and either one or two things happened. Uh, one, it was a complete disaster. You had to call, uh, phone a friend, phone a wife, call a trailer. Or B, uh, you miraculously made a roadside or otherwise uh, repair and, and got back on the road. Oh, gosh, I'd have to go through the list. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think vintage bikes is... Uh, yeah, that's uh, what I'm thinking. Probably the, the, the one that was the, the, the most difficult was... Uh, we were on a on a trip, had gone all through Canada. We were on our way back to Phoenix. Uh, had driven up a dirt road to camp for the night. And uh, this is in the backwoods of, uh, gosh, must be Utah. I think it was just north of Salt Lake City somewhere. And uh, woke up the next morning, and uh, it wasn't me, but one of the fellows I was riding with had a flat tire. And at that point, we'd used all the tubes. We'd used all the flat tire repair kits we had. We figured we'd just make it back to Phoenix. And, well, we didn't. <laughs> and, uh, that one resulted in about a 250-mile round trip to find an inner tube so that wow. we could repair uh, or the, the, the bike. There, wow. was, there was no out of where we were. So somebody had to stay put while the other one went out and found found a tube. Yeah, exactly. It was uh, quite a quite an interesting day, to say the least. Yeah, but, uh, and probably the yeah. I was, I was just going to say, you know, but this sounds like it would have been back in the early seventies or something when you just moved out there. Exactly. And, you know, that's exactly. you're not. I mean, you can't even call on a cell phone or, or a pay phone. Uh, I should say. So it was a real unknown scenario. Which side of the coin were you on? Well, let's see, it was back, this would have been in mid-70s, and yeah. we were in the middle of nowhere, and yes, no cell phones, and uh, well, like I said, we had a, had a, you know, you didn't even have an electric uh, air pump at the time. So, <laughs> so, you guys, so you guys were maybe riding two up on the bike then? Is that what you were doing? Uh, oh, no, no, no. I, I was riding, actually, I was riding a, what was I riding? I was on my R69, I think, uh-huh. R69, and uh, the other fellow was on a, uh, I think it was an R75 slash five, and uh, we were, we, it was just, we were each on our own bike, and anyway, he he ended up having a flat tire, and I had to go fetch an inner tube for him. Got it. Got so, it. Yeah. It, it wasn't me, but uh, there were there were. Any number of other ones. I had the, the drive shaft bolts uh, that bolt the flange on yep. the back of the transmission come off uh, on my R69 uh, on a busy freeway in, in Florida. 
before I knew that there were drive shaft bolts that came loose <laughs> on a sixty nine at that time. Yeah, I had that happen to me on a on a slash five in New Orleans one time. Yeah, so uh, that was a, a I was able to to fish out a, enough of them, and there was enough oil left in the uh, in the boot that I managed to get two bolts put back in and uh, managed to to get the thing back to where I was living at the time, so I could get it fixed. Um, oh gosh, uh, quite a few other memorable experiences. Fortunately, most of them were not uh, not to my bike, but somebody I was riding. With. <laughs> good. Well, that's good for you. That's that's good to know. Well, I got to tell you, Chuck. You know, as I mentioned at the top, and as we discussed a lot here in the sort of meat of our conversation, um, I sort of became just aware of you. Uh, on Adventure Rider, uh, again, you post as Walla, W-A-L-L-A, man, uh, in the Airhead section and other places, I presume. But if folks want to find uh, out what we were talking about as far as your uh, MKM 1000 and the work you've been doing on the four-valve heads, <clears throat> there's a lot of great posts uh, there. I'd invite people to check that out. And of course, you know, I had little idea about uh, your extensive history with the brand and uh, all you've done uh, rest uh, restoration-wise, uh, and all the all the neat bikes you've owned over the years. So it's been real fun uh, talking with you and learning about all this. Pleasure and uh, been a lot of fun. Real quick note: Yes, the, the Walla Man is actually uh, the shortening of a nickname I got working at the chopper shop back when I was a kid, because everybody had a nickname there. And my nickname was Chuckawalla. So, wow. Where, and what was the origin of that? Oh, just somebody took Chuck and decided that they needed to add something on to oh, it. Oh, I got you. I got you. Yeah. 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 Like a Chucky, you know? Chucky Poo or something like that. Yeah. I got you. I well, got not you. quite Chucky Poo. <laughs> <laughs> Given given the, the group that I was with, but, uh, <laughs> in any event, Chuckawalla happened and it stuck and became Walla Man later on. That's, so, yeah, that's oh, that's a great moniker, easy to remember. Uh, Chuck Sherman, look uh, again, really appreciate the time and continued success. Uh, look forward to hearing more uh, about how your MKM goes along and everything else. So be well. Will do, and we will keep the, the posts on uh, Adventure Rider moving once I get back to, to assembly there. Thank you very much. Really thankful to have spent some time with Chuck on the program this week. Great job, lots of fun information, and as always, a great visit with William Plam at Boxer 2 Valve. So, until next time, so long, everyone. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time. Mm-hmm.